Well, it's good to be with you this morning. As Kathy mentioned, and as many of you know, I was uh, away this week. I got to take some time away to think and pray and plan for the fall and start thinking through a little bit about vision for our church and where we're headed. And so that was a good time for me, and you'll be hearing more about that time here in the coming weeks, but I just wanted to say thanks for your prayers. Please, please do keep praying both for me and for the elders and the deacons, the leadership of the church, as we just seek to um, follow God and as we seek to lead the church as the Lord would have us. Um, I'm excited about what's ahead in the fall for us this year. But, believe it or not, we're still in the summer. Fall's coming sooner than we, many of us expect, but we are here uh, right near the end of Judges. For those of you who are visiting for the first time today, we've been spending our summer in the book of Judges. And um, each week we've, we've talked about different aspects of, of one underlying reality that, th- that runs throughout the whole book of Judges, and it's this, this one main point, that the greatness of God's grace is seen most clearly in the depths to which it reaches. And every week in the book of Judges, we read these stories, we see that the depths are often very deep, but in the midst of it all, we see a God who is faithful to His people and who does not give up on them. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were uh, in the chapters preceding ours today, and we were talking about the life of Samson. Now, if you read ahead for this week, you'll notice that, that the book of Judges changes this week at the start of chapter 17. It starts to feel different. Because Samson was the last of what are termed the judges or the deliverers in the book of Judges. And when you get to the beginning of chapter 17, suddenly there's a very different feel. Because now, instead of hearing about these great leaders, or in many cases not so great leaders, that God raised up to deliver his people, now we start to see this picture of, of what it was like in a lot of ways for the average person in Israel we get a little bit more of a sense of what life was like on the ground for people during this time. We don't just see these leaders, we see average people. So that's what we're going to be getting into this morning in Judges chapter 17 and 18. I'll warn you, it's a long reading, but uh, we have to get sort of the the whole sense of the story. So uh, sit back, listen, follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Pew Bibles, and we're on page 216 in Judges chapter, chapter 17. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come before the Lord's word to us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we confess in faith what is often um, hard to see at first glance, that this is, in fact, your word to us, that Scripture is your communication to us, your people. You have not left us in the dark about who you are, but you've revealed yourself to us in the pages of the Bible. And you've done that here in these two chapters of Judges as well. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see you. We pray that you would open our hearts that we might respond in love to you. We pray that we would know you better. We pray that you would meet us by the power of your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 17 and 18. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. 
and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, who lodged there and lodged there. And then they were, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me. I've become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. The priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw there the people who were there and how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, the brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. Will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go. Enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and encamped at Kirith-Jerim in Judah. And on this account, that place is called Mahana-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kirith-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. And the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish came back to their brothers. Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood there by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest of the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. 
He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they'd gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take away my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? People of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish and to people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab, and they built the city and rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as a house of God was at Shiloh. And you're thinking, of course. Sounds just like my life. Uh, let's, I, I want to recap a little bit about what happens in this story because it does, it just feels so foreign to us, right? I mean, life in the countryside of Judah during the time of Judges feels, feels maybe very far removed from our lives right now. But the story is essentially about three different characters or three different groups. Okay, there's Micah, the, um, this guy who lives in Ephraim. There's the Levite who comes to live with him, this priest. And then there's this whole tribe of Israel, the people of Dan. Now, for Micah, he is, he's average Joe in Israel. Farmer, he's just a guy living out in the hills. And, and the story opens up in the middle of this very strange scene where it turns out that he's stolen some money from his mother. And his mother utters this curse. You know, cursed be the one who stole this. Now, Micah is, is afraid of the effects of the curse. So what he does is he comes and he confesses to his mother what he's done. And she uh, revokes the curse and says, blessed be the Lord. And you're thinking, you know, he's done wrong and he's come to his mother and things are getting restored and and, and maybe think things are going to go well here. And then the next thing she says is, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord. So she gives part of it to the silversmith and he builds an idol for her. Micah goes and puts it in with the other idols of their family, with their household gods. And you think, surely things things aren't, aren't, maybe aren't the way they're, they're supposed to be for this family in Israel. And then the next person we meet is this Levite. The Levites were the tribe in Israel who were designated to be priests and the people who served in the, um, in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And later when God was going to choose a place and the people were going to build a temple, they were going to be the people who were in charge of the sacrifices, were, in, were the priests. They were the people in charge of the religious life of Israel. And so we see Micah and how badly he's gone wrong. And we think, you know, finally, here's a Levite. Here is somebody who has been designated a priest for God. Surely he's going to come in and finally set things straight for them. He knows what what it means to really worship God. He knows what it means for them as a people to really follow God. But then what do we find out about this Levite? Well, he uh, was living in Judah, and he goes traveling looking for a better deal. He goes traveling around the country looking for a place where God might provide for him. And he stumbles across Micah, and Micah offers him a salary. 
and he offers him clothes, and he says, all you need to do is come be the priest to uh, my little household shrine. And the Levite says, okay, I'll do it. I'll come and serve you. And Micah ordains him as a priest, and suddenly the religious professional has now become a cohort with him in this, in this worship that's just gone, gone very badly. And then this third party, we've got a whole tribe of Israel. The tribe of Dan was one of the smaller tribes in Israel. And at the end of Joshua, the book preceding Judges, in the beginning of Judges, we hear about the conquest of the land. We hear about God bringing his people into this land they promised. But we see that the people of Dan, they couldn't conquer their little corner of the land. It doesn't really explain why, but they had trouble overcoming their enemies. And so at this point in the story, we see them choosing plan B. Okay, God called us to this one part of the country. It, does, it doesn't seem to be working out for us. So we're going to travel around and see what we can find. And lucky for them, they find this unsuspecting people uh, that are going to become their prey. And there are two interesting statements, same statement made twice here, in um, chapter 17, verse 6, and then 18, verse 1. It kind of stands out like a, like a neon sign in the middle of this passage. In those days, there was no king. And we see that being played out in the life of this guy Micah and of the Levite, the religious professional, and this whole tribe trying to make their way in a world and in a country and in a life where they look around and say, there is no king. It's up to us to make our own way. Uh, we're going to take a look in a minute at this statement and find out whether or not it was really true. Was there a king? Was there no king? But there are just three things I want to take a look at this morning that I think this text brings out for us. Um, three things the text shows us about living in relationship with God. Living in relationship with God means three things. It means knowing our king as he really is. And it means trusting our king to meet our needs. And it means obeying our king from the heart. Following God means knowing our king, trusting our king, and actually obeying our king. So let's take a look first at at knowing our king as he really is. Again, two times it says there was no king in Israel. And you look on the surface of the story, and that seems abundantly clear. That's been their problem throughout the story. They haven't had adequate leadership. God's been providing these judges for them, but the judges never quite take them far enough. They bring deliverance for a season, and then the people find themselves back in the middle of idolatry, back in the middle of oppression time and time again. And one of the things we keep asking over the course of the book is, is there ever going to be a leader that's really going to go the distance? Is there ever going to really be a leader that's really going to provide the kind of salvation that they really need? We look around and there is no, there's no king. There's no human king to lead them. There's no king to give them leadership in, in following God and being obedient to the covenant. Well, so it's true they have no king, but it's also not exactly true. I think there's some irony on the part of the narrator here when he says there's no king, because if you look in the bigger context of what God's doing with his people, um, back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' farewell to God's people In chapter 33, there's an interesting statement. It says that the Lord became their king. That the whole idea of God calling his people out of Egypt and out of slavery was in order that he could free a people to serve him, to know him, to be in relationship with him, and that he would, in fact, be their king. After the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel, um, there's an interesting statement when uh, Samuel is in conversation with God and the people have, have clamored for an earthly king. And God has finally said, all right, you can have it. And Samuel's distressed by this. And God says to Samuel, don't be distressed on your account. 
He says, for they have rejected me as their king. You see, the people did have a king. They had a divine king. They had a God who called them out of slavery into life, into freedom. And he was the one who was going to lead them. And time and again, they turned their back on him. So we see these three parties. We see Micah, we see the Levite, we see the Danites. All going their own way. All living without any sense that they live in the presence of a divine king who's ruling over them, taking care of them, and calling them into relationship with himself. And the end result was, it says, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It seems like, for a lot of us, a lot of the time, we don't really like the idea of having a king either. You know, some of us are very suspicious, even about the idea of authority at all. Power corrupts, right? We look around and we see examples all around us of the authorities that are around us, and we see how far badly they go wrong. Um, You know that from your own experiences growing up in your own family. Did your parents always use their authority right? Those of you that are in the middle of child rearing, as my family and I are, you know that you don't always use your power the way you ought to. And so some of us are deeply uh, suspicious. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but Liz and I recently saw the movie Syriana. And it's all about the conspiracy of big government and big corporations to essentially rule the world. And it's all driven by lust and power for oil and money. And there's something when I watch a movie like that, I think, yeah, that's right. You know, there's something about us that can so easily be so cynical about the way power is used in our world. And sometimes that cynicism is well-deserved because we've seen it abused. We know what power can really do. Uh, Years ago, I, ran, I met a guy named George who claimed to be a monarchist. Um, he genuinely believed that what we needed in America was to reestablish a monarchy. Now, I don't know if it was um, just coincidence that his name was George and <laughs> thought maybe, <laughs> maybe that might be fitting. Uh, you know, but most of us are deeply suspicious of an idea like that of having a king. In fact, the only way we think we'd really want a king is if maybe we were the king ourselves. right? Maybe a kingship's not so bad if you're the one who's on top. But again, there's something in us that just resists being ruled. I realized as I went through college and looked forward to um, graduating and having a salary and having an apartment of my own, I thought, now I'm an adult. And part of what that means is that every night for dinner, I can eat exactly what I want to eat for dinner. (laughs) And I don't have to eat anything that I don't want to eat for dinner, right? That there would be, that's a silly small example, but that there would be no constraints, right? That finally... Finally, I don't have the call of a family that I grew up with. Finally, I can spend my time the way I want to. Finally, my money is really mine. I can spend my money the way I want to. Finally, I'm really free. Um, And I found, and I think we find, that sometimes it's that what we want when we want freedom is, in fact, to do what's right in our own eyes. So I guess just a simple question for all of us is, how's that working for you? You know, because if you think about it for a minute, we have this drive. We feel like what I need is to be unfettered by any sort of claim on my life. The irony of that is, so often the thing that we think is going to we think is going to bring us the most freedom actually brings us the most slavery, the most isolation, the most distance. So the people in this chapter need to be reminded that that they have a king. They need to know that they have a king. But they also need to know that they have a king, in capital letters. Uh, you see, they wanted, they wanted a god, lowercase g, but they didn't want a god who was really going to be their king. 
who's really going to lead them. Because if you notice, all these people are very religious. Okay, there are no atheists in this passage. They all believe in God. The problem is that they don't believe some of the right things about God. And they show us kind of an important point that you can be very religious and you can still miss God. Because that's what happens to all these people. Micah, he's got this religion based on um, a, a fear of retribution and an, and an overweening desire for prosperity. You know, he fears God's curse, so he repents. And the next thing we turns around, as soon as a Levite shows up, he says, finally, I know that God is going to prosper me because I've got the ace in the hole. I've got a legitimate priest to be the... Uh, to lead me as I worship my household and gods. And then you've got the Levite, this religious leader. He's using God for his own personal advancement. The deal isn't good enough in Judah. I'm going to go look for something better somewhere else. And you've got the Danites, these people, a whole clan of people in Israel, called to be his people, called to know him, and called to dwell in a part of the land that God provided for them. And they say, essentially, it's too hard. We're going to go find greener pastures somewhere else. We're going to take all this into our own hands. Is it possible that we're often in the same danger, that we can be very religious and we can manage to miss God at the same time, that we can be very busy with our religious activities and we can separate them from the context of actually relating with God? In fact, some of the good things that we do can actually be things uh, that for us are a way not of encountering God, not of serving Him, not of enjoying Him, but of actually avoiding Him. You know what it's like to stay busy. You know what it's like to do the things and become consumed with that. For some of us, it's, you know, as dry as, and this was me in college, for as dry as my own relationship with God might be, every morning I'm going to get up, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to grit my teeth and say my prayer. Now, I might not love Jesus at all, but I'm going to do my duty. Some of us, maybe it's just, you know, um, I've never missed church. Not in my 50 years, or, you know, maybe, is it your church attendance? Is that the thing? Is that the way that you're actually avoiding God through a good religious duty? Some of us, again, it's serving others. We can be so busy doing good things for all the people around us that we can lose any sense of quiet and reflection and actual interaction with the God that we say that we're serving and hope to be serving. You see, it's the same with these people in this passage. They didn't have a king, they had a religious safety net they were looking to to catch them when they fall, but not an actual king to whom they were going to relate. Here's the thing. God calls us, part of following God is knowing our king, but it's also trusting our king to meet our needs. Micah, the Levite, the Danites, they don't actually trust God to provide for them the things that they'd promised. Um, And they do this in spite of God's good track record that they're all aware of. He delivered them from Israel. He put his love on them as a people and promised to uphold it. He gave them the promised land. You might remember these two verses from earlier in Judges in chapter 2 when the angel of the Lord comes and reminds the people of all the good things God's done for them. The angel comes to them and says, I brought you up out of Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Begins with this reminder of, remember all the good things that God has done, but still you're not trusting him. Still you don't trust God's work in your life. Uh, this past week, I started reading the book Band of Brothers. 
um, book about, um, it's the story of E Company, part of the 506th Regiment of the 101st Airborne in World War II. I have a feeling you might hear a lot of illustrations from Band of Brothers in the coming months. But this, I, I, war history is new for me, but as I'm reading this book, I'm just engrossed by what the men of this company went through as they're preparing to become soldiers to step into World War II. And for almost two years, they're going through this incredibly rigorous training as they get ready to participate in the D-Day campaign. And the commander of their company for most of this time was a guy named First Lieutenant Herbert Sobel. This man, he was a strict disciplinarian. He was hard on them. He drove them in hard. And on the one hand, they, they became one of the fittest units in the entire army. They put their trainers to shame. They were in such good shape. But this man was also petty. He didn't have much tactical sense. What happened over the course of these two years is this man utterly lost the respect and the trust of his men to the point that the men were joking often, maybe not so jokingly, about, um, you know, who's going to be the one to uh, shoot him from the back when we get into combat. And the, some of the officers in this company were having such trouble with this, getting ready to go to desperate measures to try to get rid of him, to try to undermine uh, the executive officer's confidence in him, that finally it all comes to a head. And he is transferred out of the company. And the men are so relieved because they think, now we can have a leader that we can trust, that can take us into combat. Is this your picture of God? Someone who's putting you through the exercises, who's putting you through the paces, driving you hard, but he's unwilling to really meet your needs, to really care for you, to really lead you. You can't really trust him. Is that your picture of God? Another military example. Um, In 480 B.C., King Xerxes of Persia led an army of two million men to capture Greece. And at the pass of Thermopylae, the Spartan King Leonidas, with 300 Spartans, several hundred more allied Greeks, stood in this pass, and for seven days, they held off two million men from invading Greece, according to the historian Herodotus. And they died to the last man. And that delay allowed the rest of Greece to rally and be able to repel Xerxes and his men. Read a novel about this, and the last Greek dying finds himself in a conversation with King Xerxes about, of all things, kingship. And he's speaking about his king, Leonidas. And this soldier says to King Xerxes, I will tell his majesty what a king is, A king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry, nor sleep when they stand at watch upon the wall. A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear, nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and the pains that he endures for their own sake. That which comprises the harshest burden, a king lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require service of those he leads, but provides it to them. He serves them, not they him. Now, this novelist didn't know he was talking about Jesus, but he surely was. We find in Jesus, God our king in the flesh. We find a king that we can actually know and a king that we can actually trust. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus speaking about himself, 
came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We are people who are in need of a king. And scripture tells us that God has provided the very king that we need. Not one who is simply a strict disciplinarian. Not one who simply puts burdens on our backs, but who takes burdens from us. One who actually, through service to him, makes us free. This passage invites us to both know our king and to trust our king. But here's the thing. If we know that we have a king, if we know that we have a king, if we're learning to trust our king, doesn't it make sense that we're also going to find ourselves miraculously able now to actually obey our king? Our fear of having an authority placed over us, a fear of having our freedom constricted, we find out that actually we have a king who in service to him brings us freedom rather than bondage. John 14, 15, Jesus said this simply to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will follow me. If you know me as your king, if you know the freedom that I bring you, then you're going to actually now experience something you've never experienced before, which is the ability to joyfully obey, to joyfully follow, to follow and serve a king that doesn't rob you of life, but actually brings you life. Not a king that doesn't stretch us, not a king that doesn't grow us and often discipline us, but a king who through it all is bringing us life. Now, there are things that we obey in life. You obey the demands of your career ladder. Some of us have tried to obey the demands of a budget, something I struggle with. Some of us uh, have tried to obey the demands of a diet. We know what it's like to serve things that oppress us and that ultimately feel like they rob us of life. Is it possible that so often that we're obeying the wrong things? Things that really bring us death rather than a king, King Jesus, who comes to bring us life. You see, if we follow this king, it's good news. It's good news for you, but it's not, it's not just enlightened self-interest. It's not just simply a better and smoother path, path for us. If you're learning to trust Jesus, if you're learning to follow him, and you're finding this king that you are following is also the king that you're learning to love because he has first loved us. And you're finding slowly over time that your motivation is becoming less and less around the orbit of your own self-interest and your own sense of your needs. And you're finding more and more that you're becoming empowered to actually follow Jesus because he's Jesus. Because he is your king. And because you start to think more and more, how else would I possibly respond to a king that has come and rescued me from death? Who's rescued me from every slavery? Who's brought me a life that I've never known before? Of course I'm going to obey. And this is what the life of a Christian is all about. More and more, seeing how beautiful the salvation we've been provided in Jesus really is. Seeing more clearly the ways in which we still stumble and struggle and fail, and seeing even more clearly how quickly our God rushes to meet us in our need. Our God who brought us salvation, 
was not afraid of our sin is the God who still brings us life and salvation and who is still not afraid of our sin. May we find more and more that this Jesus who lavishes love on us is one that we're now more and more able to follow as our good king. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we are slow to know you and slow to trust and still so often slow to obey. We pray that your love for us would shine brightly for us. And we pray that when you show us our sin, you would do so tenderly. But let us not turn aside from facing the reality of ourselves. Instead, let us turn to you for forgiveness and healing and strength. We thank you that you are our king. And you not simply command from on high, but you have stepped down into the middle of our lives, taken our burdens on your back, and you lead from the midst of your people as you step graciously into our lives. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing uh, our closing hymn, Jesus.